I don't understand how in the midst of some of the strongest and most passionate critiques of capitalism that I have read or experienced in my lifetime, we are doubling down on the economy, the stock market, corporate America is the only place in which we can get results. I am deeply bothered by this thread, which seems to be running through so much of these stories and Again, like the way we're all waiting for corporate America to lead us out of the dark ages or we're waiting on retail investors to lead us out and to show us the way. Like, I I don't know. I don't know. It makes me really uncomfortable. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're going to focus quite a bit on money today since we are living in the GameStop era now for the past couple of weeks. We're going to talk a little bit about that and how it has us thinking about corporate responsibility and the stock market and how we interact with all of that as consumers and citizens. Before we do, if you're not getting our newsletter, I feel like you're missing really wonderful connections with other Pantsuit Politics listeners. Every Friday, and only on Friday, we send out an email, the most important part of which shares feedback from our community. And there are always such lovely insights and such personal messages shared. And so I really want all of you to be able to be part of that. You can sign up on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. You just scroll down that homepage to a big purple box, enter your email address, and Really, the only time we send out messages are on those Fridays or very, very special occasions. So before we dive into the economy and the GameStop controversy, fervor, instability, I don't know what word we're using. But before we dive into that, we do want to talk about the COVID relief package. As most of you know, President Joe Biden and his administration proposed a $1.9 trillion package that includes Money for vaccine distribution, money for schools, money for state and local governments. It also includes a raise to the federal minimum wage up to $15 and some other policy proposals. Now we have a group of 10 senators led by Senator Susan Collins from Maine proposing another COVID relief bill much smaller, about $600 billion. And as we're recording on Monday, they are heading to the White House to discuss this bill with President Joe Biden. Uh, We wanted to talk about it with full knowledge that this could be out of date by the time they have this meeting and this episode comes out on Tuesday. But we still felt like it was really important to talk about this proposal and its accompanying, depending on who you are, either call or response to discussions of unity. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Perhaps that's the place to start since that's where the story is living. Because the story is much less about a counterproposal to a COVID package and much more about the vaguely threatening way that this letter is being talked about. Because what you have here are 10 Republican senators. For the most part, I think this represents the group most likely to work across the aisle throughout the Biden years. Although commentators fairly point out that there is no reason to believe that this group will consistently or ever work across the aisle when it matters Mm. based on the past four years. But this is the group most likely, if that is to happen, Going to President Biden with an attitude of you said you wanted to do things on a bipartisan basis, and so you need to listen to us on this and walk in our direction instead of passing through most of your envisioned relief using a reconciliation process that takes a simple majority in the Senate versus 60 votes. Is that a fair summary, Sarah? I think that's pretty fair. Yeah, it is. Half, as I said before, of Joe Biden's proposal. And I think what really bugs me about it is it is it's like using this call for unity as a weapon. And look, Joe Biden did spend a great deal of his inaugural address calling on Americans, all Americans, to end our quote unquote uncivil war and calling on his own history of bipartisanship and his belief that it is essential to a good and functioning D.C., if not democracy. But then he did not spend the next week coming out every day with complex plans to establish unity. His message has always been we establish unity by dealing with the crises before us. It's like unity to me is a value. It's not 
the end all goal of the administration. It is a value of the administration. And I value the fact that he's having them to the White House to discuss this package and this proposal. But the idea that the only goal of the administration is unity. And if it's not, if if, if whatever they're doing doesn't achieve unity and doesn't have some bi- sort of bipartisanship, then it doesn't matter. Well, that's not the goal. You know, Jen Psaki said he goes to bed every night thinking about COVID and he wakes every morning thinking about COVID and how to deal with this crisis and get the most Americans well and safe and our economy back on track, kids back in school. And, you know, this package under the administration's understanding and rubric and legislative priorities achieves that. And so if you want to me, the the smarter thing would have been is we want what you want. We want what you want. Here's why we think this is a better way to do it instead of, well, we want what you want, but you're spending too much money and you said you wanted to be bipartisan. That just bugs me. I would take this letter much more seriously if it were framed with more questions. Now, that's a terribly naive thing to say about Washington, D.C., right? No one operates in good faith. Everything is used as a weapon. And I'm saying all of that because that's the way we read it. I don't think that's always what's going on, but that's the way the storyline is always presented. So just like all of the executive order tweets, Biden has done 40 executive orders now or taken 40 executive actions. Tick, tick, tock. There's so many of those. How can we continue to go on this way? It's unsustainable. Well, If he weren't doing that, then what you would say is Biden promised all these things. Where are they? He hasn't Mm -hmm. delivered on any of them. I mean, there's always going to be some kind of weapon in the process. So I don't care so much about that part of the storyline here. I would like to see everyone treating this crisis as the crisis it is and trying Mm -hmm. to make this the best package possible. And I think to that end, there are some points that this group has. I'm interested in any of the money from the first relief packages that hasn't been spent yet. I want to know why that money hasn't been spent and how we can make those programs better and how we can administer those programs more equitably. That's certainly in line with the articulated priorities of the Biden administration. It's not a good thing that PPP money was sent out in the manner that it was, where lots of businesses that really needed it didn't get it, and lots of businesses that really didn't need it did. That's a problem. And I think talking about that is important. I think we've gotten really hung up on some symbolism around one-time relief payments, which I support. I, I am not against any aspect of this bill because I think it's too much money. But I also think if we're arguing about whether a household in the $200,000 a year plus range, recognizing that that is not a ton of money depending on where you live in the country, but a household in that range getting $1,600 direct relief payments versus what all of that money pooled together could do for childcare programs, could do to get kids back in school, could do to get vaccines in arms. You know, I, I think the allocation of the dollars matters a lot. And I wouldn't die on the hill of what exactly is the relief check amount for something that's one time versus something that's programmatic. There's policy stuff to argue about here The Biden administration anticipated that. I'm sure these senators anticipate that, and that's why they're lowballing from the very beginning. If this ultimately makes a better bill, I'm excited about that. I don't think that process is helped by Rob Portman sitting on Fox News saying, well, if he really meant unity, you know, he would sign off on our proposal. Over the weekend, I listened to Ezra Klein interview Paul Krugman, the economist, on his new podcast. It was very good. And I thought what was really helpful was the framework of this particular crisis as closer to a natural disaster 
than a traditional recession. He was talking about, you know, the truth is one household who makes over $200,000 a year won't get a blip, like won't fill that $1,600. And another household that makes over $200,000 a year in the tourist industry will feel it tremendously, right? And it's just really hard when we come out and we say, well, you know, the average salaries are fine or people are saving on average. And his point was like, well, yeah, on average, but that's not really applicable in this particular type of crisis because it is hitting the people it's hitting extraordinarily hard. He's like, you know, I I hate all discussions of average. If Jeff Bezos walks into the bar, everybody's average wealth goes up, but you don't feel the impact of that. (laughs) You know, your actual wealth doesn't go up. And so the idea that like, well, we're worried about people getting money they don't need. And I, I just think often there's this like technocratic obsession, usually on the left, not the right, with making sure we're doing it perfectly when there is more to be gained by doing it quickly. And I think this is a case where we need to do it quickly, you know, and it might not be perfect and then people might get money they don't actually need. But I think it's more important to not be obsessed with it, you know, not to mention like that there's an entire economic argument about whether we should be obsessed with the overall total cost at all. But I mean, that's a bigger fish to fry right now. But I just think that the obsession with the cost in the middle of a crisis of this magnitude and then having no other argument beyond the cost except for you said you wanted to be bipartisan is it's just it's hard to swallow. And again, I'm not I'm glad he's having them at the White House. I think shutting them out would be the wrong approach. I don't anticipate a lot of movement, but we'll see. I don't disagree with any of that. And ultimately, I'm a pragmatist about this. I would rather the checks just be cut with the risk that people get the money who don't need it, because sometimes it's cheaper to cut the Mm -hmm. check to everybody than to figure out who really needs it and who doesn't. And that slows things way down. And every economist who I trust has said the risk here is underspending, not overspending Mm -hmm. in terms of what is needed. And so it's not that I'm in agreement here. I do think it's fair to ask questions like that. Does it make more sense to allocate direct spending here versus shoring up programmatic spending there? And I think that everyone in Congress has just screwed this up 11 times over by allowing the debate to go on for so long instead of getting something done quickly. We would not still be talking about 1600 versus 2000 if this had passed in June when we needed mm-hmm. it. But all those positions have kind of hardened because this thing has drug on for so long. And so however the Biden administration gets this done is fine with me. I think these Republicans are acting like they have a lot more leverage than they do here mm-hmm. because a fair counterpoint to, well, you should listen to us because you said you wanted unity is, well, if you can't even vote with us on COVID relief, then we're just going to get rid of the filibuster and pass our whole agenda because you're clearly not serious either. Mm-hmm. And and that's a really nihilistic place to be, but that's how they're all talking about it right now. And so just putting on a banner of like bipartisanship and unity, pulling some lines from the president's inaugural address, to me, does not show that you are actually ready to partner in good faith. I hope they have a great meeting today and that by the time y'all hear this, we're all going to be so blown away and pleasantly surprised by what has unfolded. 
My level of optimism is not high, but I wish to be wrong. From your lips to God's ears. Okay. So moving on from the COVID relief negotiation, we wanted to spend some time with the economy. I mean, it's like a small subject. I think we should be able to move through it pretty quickly. Don't you think, Beth? (laughs) I put in our notes... For this segment, why do we have a stock market? Sarah was like, good, Beth. That's a great, that's a good narrow niche starting place. <laughs> no, I said, oh, dear, we're going to do the whole history of the stock market. I just think it's good to kind of think about what we're actually talking about. Because in my mind, the stock market is like so many things. This relatively simple concept that has layers and layers of jargon and practice and gatekeeping to make sure that most people don't really understand it. And that bugs me. And I just want to make sure that we all really understand from a 50,000-foot view what we're talking about. So, Beth, why do we have a stock market? Because businesses need money to do things. And sometimes they need that money before they can generate it in another form. And so the stock market is just the idea that investors are bringing money in in exchange for sharing in future profits. Public Mm -hmm. trading says anybody can be one of those investors and take a piece. And the idea has been that the stock market is supposed to efficiently allocate lots and lots of capital to businesses and lots and lots of future profits to investors. But ultimately, when you buy a stock, you're just placing a bet. I think this company will do well, so I'm going to put some cash in, assuming that I will eventually get to take more cash out, and that that period of time between my cash going in and some cash coming back to me is one that's acceptable to me, right? So there are a range of risk categories that you take in positions relative to stocks based on your tolerance for how long that process is going to take. So let's talk about two other words that get thrown around a lot, sometimes without any basic definitions being attached to them. So we hear a lot about mutual funds. That is just professionally managed investments in the stock market. So you give your money to the mutual fund And they are going to say, we're going to invest in the stock market, but we're going to get you a little bit better return than if you were just placing those bets on your own. When you're placing them on your own, that's where you get retail investors. That's where that term comes from that you hear thrown around a lot, particularly in the last uh, week or so, who are out there just trading on their own without any professional guidance or help, as you would find with a mutual fund. So you're walking into the casino as an individual retail investor and just picking games to play and seeing what happens. If you're part of a mutual fund, you're walking in with a group of people who are all going to play games and they're going to have an expert telling them, you all play this one and you all play this one and this is how we improve the odds that this whole group goes home with some money. And then you've also probably heard, particularly with regards to GameStop, about hedge funds. And they're also a group but it's a very limited partnership of investors, and they're going to use really high-risk methods to try to beat the casino. They're going to take really large bets, really risky bets. A lot of these are what is called, again, another term you probably heard pretty recently, short selling. Short selling is not new. It's been around since at least the early 1800s. And short selling just means I am going to invest in a way that allows me to profit if this asset performs poorly. If a stock loses money, I make something when I am in a short position. There are a bunch of ways to do this and a lot of terminology around it. And investors have been using things like shorts 
and derivatives and hedges and swaps for a long time just to try to make sure I never lose too much money, that I can Mm -hmm. put lots of money into the stock market and ultimately come out pretty well, even if I take some very risky positions. And because there's so much risk involved, for the most part, this has been a game in which most Americans were not betting. Lots of people have their retirement savings in mutual funds, but as far as retail investors, it wasn't a lot of people until 2020 when an estimated 10 million new accounts opened up, 6 million of which were with the app Robinhood, which promises a very easy technological solution to retail investors. Just get on the app, decide which, what shares you want to buy. It sort of promised this sort of instantaneous delivery on retail investing and eliminating all that gatekeeping, all the professional fees. This is a zero-fee trade, all these things. And so it was opening the doors to the casino wide open for lots of people to come in. And everything that happens in the stock market, much like the casino, is about confidence and optimism. If investors think the economy is growing, they buy more stock. And that makes the stock price go higher, which leads to more people investing, which helps more people make money. And sometimes that increase in wealth leads to an increase in consumer spending, which means businesses can make more and sell more and profit more. And it's just a cycle of hoping for more, more, more based on confidence that more, more, more is coming. The other thing important to know is not only is a lot of this based on confidence, but a lot of it is based on credit. So and here is where we're going to get into the GameStop controversy. Now, I have visited a GameStop. Beth, have you ever visited a GameStop? Oh, yeah. I've frequently visited Mm -hmm. a GameStop. There is still one close to my house that my husband occasionally picks up Nintendo Switch games from. Yep. Agreed. We also have a GameStop in our town in Paducah. We do the, the, the trades and the buys and the used and the things for all the Nintendo Switch games and DS games. So it's a retail establishment, most of which are found in malls. And so you're starting 2021. And if you are perhaps a hedge fund that's looking to make a lot of money on short sales, you're going to pick stocks that you think aren't going to go do so well in 2021 in the middle of a pandemic. Like, for example, a retail-based gaming store like GameStop. And you're looking at GameStop and saying, not only is it retail, but it's kind of old and everybody's getting their games online now. And we know that lots of people are playing games, but we also know that not lots of people play lots of games, right? We have lots of players, but players tend to be pretty focused on a couple of games instead of playing so many that they would need to constantly go to a place like GameStop to buy new games. So there are lots of reasons to go short on GameStop. Countervailing considerations are that lots of people are playing games who've never played games before because there's not much else to do. And we have this huge interest in the 90s culturally. So even within the gaming community, people are getting more excited about Mario and Atari games than they ever have before. We've got Wonder Woman set in the 90s. Like we've just got all kinds of 80s, 90s nostalgia pervading the cultural zeitgeist in the middle of this pandemic. We also have a flood of new retail investors. Now, these retail investors decided, or the 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 group coalesced, I guess is probably a better description of what happened, around this GameStop stock, and particularly the idea that it was being shorted by these massive hedge funds. Now, were they feeling nostalgia? Were they feeling funny? Were they bored and home from the pandemic? 
did they just want to stick it to the hedge fund managers and to the Wall Street firms? I don't know. Millions of people are involved here. So it's probably a little bit of all of that. And it's also, I think, millions of people wanting a piece of what they see going on in the stock market as the rest of the economy suffers. Mm -hmm. Because it's been incredibly bizarre to see the stock market just doing bananas well while so many people are losing jobs. And we have a kind of constant refrain as we talk about the economy of saying, well, the stock market isn't the whole economy. And certainly it doesn't represent everything. It's just one indicator. And yet we've had a president for four years who's very focused on the stock market as the most important indicator of the economy. And I think the best understanding that I've come across of what happened last year is that COVID causes the stock market to bottom out until people think, well, we will see our way through it. And once people decide we will eventually see our way through it, we get that confidence back. And so people are placing these bets in the stock market that eventually things are going to be reopened and people are going to be really excited about them. And we're going to have tons and tons of consumer spending because people are really excited about goods and services because we were deprived of them for a little bit. And so the stock market has just done amazing. And I think a lot of these retail investors said, well, I want a piece of that, too. And a lot of these retail investors talk to each other, particularly on forums like Reddit. And there became a drive to buy game stop stock. I had to say that slowly because it's kind of a tongue twister. As they begin to purchase game stop stock, it rises in value because the market is responding to this demand. And it's saying, hmm, this must be valuable because so many people want to buy it. And the price of GameStop goes up. Now, as it goes up, the hedge fund managers who put shorts on GameStop are in a vertical position because they are going to have to buy the stock back eventually. That's what happens in a short sale. You're gambling, but part of the gamble is I will buy this back eventually. And so they're trying to decide as this continues to rise, when do we buy it back? What are we going to do? Are they done buying it? Is this as high as GameStop is going to get or will it get higher? And so this leads to GameStop being the, like at one point, like being the most traded stock in the world. Its value increases like 10 times and everyone everywhere is talking about it, which leads to a lot of volatility, a lot of instability, and ultimately the decision of Robinhood, the trading app, the brokerage firm, to halt trades, to say you cannot trade GameStop and some other sort of meme, what they're calling meme stocks at that time. This leads to a lot of even bipartisan outrage with people feeling like they're putting their hands on the scales and Robinhood is sticking up for the hedge fund managers and the people who are getting hurt in this sale. When I think the the reality is a little more complicated and it gets back to what we talked about before, that this is a game of confidence, but it is also a game of credit. So Robinhood said, we're not trying to put our hands on the scale. We love our retail investors. We care about our retail investors. The problem is we are pretty much issuing IOUs throughout this entire process. Without getting into a whole lot of detail, when you make a trade on Robinhood, it isn't actually settled the instant that you push the buttons. Robinhood and other brokerages are providing all kinds of collateral to third parties to cover your transactions. And because of all this volatility, Robinhood needed a lot more cash to post that collateral so those transactions could go on. 
And some of that is like regulatory requirements. We want people to put up money showing they're good for all these transactions that they're putting out into the system. So it shut down buy orders in order to tap a lot of credit. Robinhood raised a billion dollars overnight in order to get back up and running processing these particular transactions. And this happened to other brokerages, not just Robinhood. And so I think there's lots of questions to ask about the instability, about the influence of retail investors, about the actions that Robinhood took. And we're going to get into that in our next segment. Before we do, we always include a little moment of hope. And since we're talking about money today, I thought, why not have a moment of hope around an entrepreneur? I read this delightful article that we'll link for you in the show notes in entrepreneur.com about Shaletta Brundage. She is a very experienced media personality who started a podcasting company to elevate Black voices in February 2020, which was a tough time to start a new business given that COVID hit in March in a big way. And she has written in entrepreneur.com about how she survived the pandemic not because of programs like PPP or because of other government assistance, but because of other Black women entrepreneurs and the way that Black women entrepreneurs constantly lift one another up and help each other through business referrals and through offering gifts of goods and services with this sort of pay it forward mentality. And her article draws on the wisdom of Madam C.J. Walker, who is the daughter of enslaved people. And she was born a year after the Emancipation Proclamation and became the nation's first female self-made millionaire. It's just such a great read. And I loved this paragraph about what the podcast hosts in Brundage's network are doing. She says, after George Floyd was murdered, we created a podcast that was the first and only town hall with Black community leaders and police officers. When the city's grocery stores were burned down during the riots, our hosts collected and passed out food. When schools shuttered because of COVID, we held virtual workshops to help parents who have kids with special needs locate resources and therapy. We held online listening sessions for teens battling mental health issues and offered a free counseling session for those who couldn't afford a therapist. It's just such an uplifting read. I so appreciate the way that she explains the dynamic among Black women entrepreneurs and uplifts that in the context of history. So highly recommend. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. 
big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. So the GameStop story has definitely been billed as this sort of David and Goliath situation, which I do think it absolutely has degrees of, I guess. Uh, but I read an article in the the New York Times editorial that was basically like, well, here's our chance to democratize corporate America and to make them more responsible and to hold their feet to the fire. And it And it felt like so reminiscent of... You know, the fact that corporate America has more trust in institutions, that it's corporate America's decisions that were really pushing us forward in many ways during the pandemic, that, you know, we're all waiting for the the CEOs to say the insurrection was a bad thing. Not to mention we have, you know, Facebook's oversight board that's basically like a corporate Supreme Court. And it just it sort of sent me down the spiral of like, I don't understand how in the midst of some of the strongest and most passionate critiques of capitalism that I have read or experienced in my lifetime. We are doubling down on the economy, the stock market, corporate America is the only place in which we can get results. Like I am, I am deeply bothered by this thread, which seems to be running through so much of these stories and Again, like the way we're all waiting for corporate America to lead us out of the dark ages or we're waiting on retail investors to lead us out and to show us the way. Like, I I don't know. I don't know. It makes me really uncomfortable. That's similar to a point that I really appreciated from this newsletter I love called Margins. Andrew Granato was writing for Margins 
and said, I want better than this. Even if you accept the most romanticized version of this story that is truly a bunch of, let's say, average wealth. I mean, you have to have disposable income if you're day trading, right? Mm -hmm. But a bunch of average wealth, little guy investors stick it to a big hedge fund on an app called Robinhood. How poetic is all of this, right? And send shockwaves through the financial system, which is both true and incomplete because certainly well into this thing, there were hedge funds on both sides. Venture capital firms are in the ownership structure of GameStop. So it is not like only little guys won and big guys lost here. Well, and not to mention that the the retail investors are not the client for Robinhood. The data those retail investors create is the product that Robinhood sells. And to me, like that sort of gets lost in all of this too. Yes, they open up retail investing to lots of people and it's and it's benefiting them. They were downloaded like more times than ever over the weekend. But what they're doing is they're taking that information and they're giving some people a glimpse of the the macro picture of what the retail investors are doing within the app. They're not making money off the retail investors. If you ignore all of the realities that cut away at the idea that this is like a an internet version of Occupy Wall Street, and you just take that narrative, we really got them here. What Andrew Granado is saying, I think, is like, that's not good enough for me. That's a really abysmal way to look at societal change. And that connects me to your point of like, if the best we can do on speech is to have an organization like Facebook create its own super court for adjudicating international human rights norms around speech, that's not good enough for me. Yeah, that's how I feel. I am happy when the CEOs of Apple or Walmart or Nike or the head of the NBA come out and make a principled stand. But it cannot end there. That's not good enough. It's important. And I'm happy that we're seeing more corporate responsibility. But the bigger they get and the more powerful they get, it becomes a stand-in. It becomes, well, this is good enough because they're so powerful. But it's not. We also, you sent me this fantastic article about how the big chains have really been the albatrosses slow down, slowing down vaccine distribution and how we have this idea that it, the bigger is better and that scalable makes it more efficient. But that the reason you're seeing vaccine distribution going so well in places like West Virginia is because there aren't a lot of CVSs and Walgreens and these big chains that are supposed to be doing vaccine distribution. It's a ton of independent pharmacies. And the independent pharmacy can act quicker, can adapt more efficiently because they're not going through many, many levels of corporate bureaucracy in order to make a decision or to change things. And this article like gets in real deep to like how CVS owns one of the clearinghouses or or organizations that basically sell the pharmaceuticals to hospitals. I didn't even know these organizations existed in the same way that I didn't know about the in-between purchase that I have made on Robinhood in the past. I've used Robinhood and the stock company or the company I'm buying stock in, that there's these individual layers, right? And I think that's the complexity of our economy that is easy to ignore because it is really complex and confusing. It's also where a lot of the money (laughs) and the credit 
and the corporate power reside. And so I, I think that's the other thing. It's like when we pay attention to the emotional stories, to the justice, which I don't I don't think this is justice. That's my other big problem is like this GameStop stock soaring is not any sort of justice in any real and, and long term way with regards to income inequality. But let's just say you do call it justice. Like when we look over there and we say, well, you know, corporate responsibility or corporations stepping up and and doing the right thing or even forcing corporations to step up and do the right thing through the power of retail investors. That's what we want. Then we miss the opportunity to prevent real harm and to actually improve the outcome, be it in the healthcare space or in the financial space or in the tech space by bringing the strength of the federal government to those those murky in between spaces, to those those financial infrastructures that exist in almost in every industry that are just completely shaded from the rest of us, right? That that the rest of us don't have the expertise or the time to even, you know, an army of day traders to really get at and understand. And even if you take them out here or there without regulation, you're just going to be constantly playing whack-a-mole, right? Like there's no long-term impact of that. And there might be short-term emotional payoff, which feels good. But I want long-term impact, not just a story that makes me feel good. I read this great article by Matt Corbett that we'll also link in the show notes about how the best rule for social media would just be to say companies that provide social media platforms are in many ways like hosts at a party. You're invited to the party until I don't want you at the party anymore and then I can throw you out. Because basically, there's too much content on social media to meaningfully moderate that content. And so you shouldn't try. It's okay to act in an arbitrary way. It's okay to make ad hoc decisions because that's all you can reasonably do. And I bring that up in connection with your point about pharmacies and business and Robin Hood, because I think a huge problem that we're confronting, and it shows up in almost every topic we discuss, is that we have access to the world at a scale that is mind-blowing. And when you have access to the world at that mind-blowing scale, everything starts to look arbitrary. And when you think about the United States government even coming in to try to bring some transparency and order to that trading infrastructure as one example, it's hard to have confidence that the United States government will do that because we have access to information about the government at a mind-blowing scale. And we realize that the government has an enormous purview that naturally leads to lots of things being decided in ways that are arbitrary or that look pretty bad when you look at them in isolation or are pretty bad when you look at them with all kinds of context and are pretty great. It's a mixed bag. And we struggle psychologically with mixed bags. And I feel like we're living in this era where the challenge of being a human being is to teach your brain that most things are mixed bags. That is a hard lesson to take in. So who makes the rules if everything's a mixed bag? And I think the conversation about Robin Hood shutting these traders down and somebody needs to do something about this sort of ignores that 
what I think a lot of society is doing is saying, well, I can't totally process that everything's a mixed bag. So I'm going to gravitate towards some personalities that feel right to me or towards some causes that feel right to me. And everything else I'm going to be pretty nihilistic and amoral about because it looks like that's how everybody else is operating too. And so nobody really has authority. And when you layer on to nobody really speaking with moral authority, the idea that corporations are going to build their own arbitration rules, that corporations Mm -hmm. are going to build their own courts to enforce those rules, that could become a really dark path. Unless we find a way to more clearly say to people, these are the principles that we are trying to enforce. We will not get it right 100% of the time or even close, but we're trying to do these things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the bigness that really freaks me out. I mean, the Matt Stoller article you sent about the pharmacies, I mean, he writes about monopolies. And I think the idea that so many of these companies, whether we're talking about the tech space, whether we're talking about healthcare, are getting to a level of size that it just, it feel, I mean, I don't want to be hyperbolic or emotional myself, but it does feel like we're like creeping ever so closely to the point of no return, where if we don't start to regulate, and, and the, the go, I, know, I understand that other people live in fear of the size of the government. And that's why we both belong at the table to have this conversation. But to me, I'm always more interested when I'm looking at a mixed bag of picking the players that are at least philosophically supposed to be motivated by things besides profit. To me, profit as a motivation is how we end up in a nihilistic space. And it's how everything becomes a transaction and how we can justify being amoral because that's the value is based on currency, not anything else. And so even though I know that in the government space, you know, pretending that that is like a really values-oriented, perfectly executed uh, situation is ludicrous. Like, I get that. At least I feel like there's like some language and there is some philosophy and some bigger call to be to be achieving something besides profit. And so that's why, you know, even though I get it's a mixed bag, that's why that that mixed bag makes me much more comfortable. And I need something that's on that same level of big but motivated by something else besides profit to tackle this problem. And while as, you know, as much as I love to stick it to hedge fund managers too, I'm still mad about Toys R Us. Like that's just, it's not going to, it's not going to get it done. It's just not going to get it done. That's my beef. And when we detach, you know, I feel like the stock market is detached enough from actual value because it is a gamble and because it's so much about confidence and something like this where, No one is arguing that GameStop, should we all be possessed by a level of 90s nostalgia on the level of QAnon, and it just becomes a mass 1990s delusion, is ever going to be worth the price that it reached? Like, it's not based on actual valuation. And so if that's the case, and we're just going to allow the stock market to further continue on this path, and, you know, and to come to the reckoning that many other industries have been forced to come to which is you got a mob of people that feel like the game is rigged and you're going to have to address them sooner or later. And I think that's important too. But I don't think in an, an effort to address that, we detach from all reality evaluation. A, a problem with that argument, I think, is that 
if we're really acting like democratization is the goal everywhere, what is the difference from a mob of people who are willing to vote with their dollars saying, no, I want GameStop to really thrive here. Now, I don't think what's just happened is going to cause GameStop to thrive. I think GameStop would be better off if all those people went and bought games instead Mm -hmm. of buying stock. But if you have a mob of people, I don't even want to use mob, like that's so pejorative. You have a group of people who decide, I want GameStop to do really well, at least at stock prices, and I'm willing to put my money behind it. How is that different from our government deciding, I want the auto industry to survive, the made-in-America car industry to survive. I want the financial system to survive. I don't agree with a lot of this article from Matt Tabby. It's called Suck It, Wall Street. But this quote really stuck out to me. He said, America's banks just had maybe their best year ever, raking in $125 billion in underwriting fees at a time when the rest of the country is dealing with record unemployment, thanks entirely to a massive Federal Reserve intervention that turned a crash into a boom. Who thinks the fundamental value of most stocks would be this high, absent the Fed's Atlas-like support in the last year? And I resist that. Like, I feel myself instinctively resisting that, right, and kind of defending some of that monetary policy decision-making. But I don't want to be scared of looking at it and saying, you know what, like, there's a point here. Because if everything is democratized, a lot more people have voted in favor of increasing the GameStop price than, in theory, voted in favor of TARP. You know what I mean? It, it, it's hard to keep valuing representative democracy when it sometimes yields results that feel totally unrepresentative. And it's hard to value a system that is supposed to be about something besides profit when injecting, like, true believerism into that system looks pretty bad. I mean, if you look at some of the people who just got elected to Congress, I would almost rather them be motivated by profit than what I think they're motivated by. I don't look at the Federal Reserve and think that they are the representation of what I'm talking about because they're motivated by growth, not democracy. And so, and even pure democratization is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is an institution that's big enough and has the resources to say, is this doing what we want it to do? Is this meeting the things that are populist values? And to me, like the corporate answer is always the stock price. It's always the stockholders, right? But yeah, it's harder to, that question is harder to answer with the populace, but it's not because we're polling everybody constantly and saying, What do you want? It's because we are taking the resources of the group and, in theory, empowering experts to figure out how best this works. And that didn't work out well either. Like, there's a real critique of technocrats and how we get so focused on, like, we was even talking at the the top of the show, of doing things like according to the data as opposed to what does this mean for people? But if it works well, if we're paying attention to a populace and the entire populace, how does this impact people? Then, you know, the government placing its hands on the scales has improved the lives of millions of Americans for hundreds of years. The government putting its hands on the scale is how we got a vaccine. It was a private-public partnership. That is to be praised because, you know, sometimes the, the research and development and the innovation 
needs a big player that's not motivated by profit to say, go see, and maybe it won't work, but we'll see. Go try it. And that's the government a lot of the time. And so to me, it's like, yeah, it's a mixed bag, but I'm still more comfortable. I'm still more comfortable holding that bag at the end of the day and saying this is where the solution lies or this is where at least the path to a solution lies. I'm not because I want mass democratization or populism at every turn, although I do have a populist streak from time to time, as most of us do. I don't think there were many Americans who heard a bunch of Reddit guys stuck it to hedge fund managers and went, oh, poor hedge fund managers. Nobody thought that. And that's fine. That's that's also a signal we should listen to. That's also valuable information about how we we feel about the market and the players within it. But, you know, I still think that the bigger issue for me is that things are getting too big. Corporations are getting too powerful. And I don't just mean corporate power. I mean something creeping up on the edges of governmental power. And that makes me really uncomfortable. No question. This Facebook oversight board just sends me to a really dark place the more I learn about it. It's yeah, but then you read the people on it. And this is why, like, the technocratic training in my brain is so powerful, because you look at the people on that board and you're like, well, yeah, heck, if somebody was like, you want to put them in charge of global free speech and human rights standards, I'd be like, heck, yeah, these people seem really well qualified. (laughs) You know, that's what's so tough about it. It is a really impressive group of people. If I think about the motivations in me being a much less impressive person than that group of people, if somebody came to me and said, you want this job, the parts of me that would want to say yes to that are the parts that are not my finest qualities. Because this is a horrible job. It -hmm. is a horrible job. It is so complex. You have to have, and I'm not accusing any of these people individually of this, but You have to have a certain level of arrogance to be able to say yes to a job like this and believe that you can do it. Mm. And I think that's true about running for office or being a leader or having a podcast or anything, right? Like you have to have a certain level of arrogance to to put yourself out there and say, I want to lead anything. Again, that is not a bad quality, but that's different because it's such a big group. It's not like anybody's taking this on themselves individually. It's this oversight group is like 20 people, 25 people. It'll be 40 if it's fully staffed. They started with 11. It'll be 40 if it's fully staffed. And they may adjust from time to time, they say, based on the needs of the body. That does not seem like a big group of people in relation to damn near every person on the planet with a Facebook account Mm. and the kinds of issues that are going to make their way to that body. They got 150,000 applications between October 2020 and when they issued their first decisions. Their first decisions came in six cases, one of Mm. which they ultimately couldn't decide because it was kind of moot. I think that is a massive undertaking, and it makes my stomach hurt to think about it, again, knowing that they will probably do some good. They probably will do some good. And they will probably do a lot of harm, too. And again, I think it all comes back to, like, how do we hold the mixed bag? I read this piece over the weekend that somebody, I think it was Matt Iglesias, had tweeted it. And, I mean, the comments were just, like, people were giving such grief about having even tweeted this piece. But the piece was a critique of Dr. Fauci. And it was a thoughtful summary of how you don't get to just be a technocrat. There is always a political Mm. element. Even when you are an expert, if you are operating in the public realm, you must do politics. And they quoted somebody as saying, everybody understands Dr. Fauci is and has to be more Game of Thrones than Mr. Rogers. That feels right to me. He's kind of affirmed that in lots of public statements, right, where he has said, 
look, I'm ratcheting this number up over time as I think the public can tolerate it. And I'm not mad at him about that. And I'm not throwing away everything he has said. And I still feel more comfortable that he's leading this effort than I would if he weren't. We really struggle. People were mad at the person who tweeted this article, who did not author it, just shared it, for sharing it because we don't trust each other to hold the mixed bag. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the GameStop thing, too. We just don't trust each other to hold the mixed bag. I think that's right. What happens if you critique technocrats is you get accused of being anti-science and anti-expertise and saying, no, sometimes the only important thing is not the data. And I say this as a Democrat, like, I think we we went too far down this road and not only to the detriment of the outcomes, but certainly to the detriment to our politics. And I mean, like the successful politics of the Democratic Party. Sometimes it might be the best policy, but if you can't sell it or if it doesn't impact people's lives in ways they can see or if it's, it takes too long to get to the perfect answer, then it doesn't matter. And I think that's hard. And I think that that's, you know, you see that a lot in big Democratic cities. Not just, you know, I'm not trying to double down on the bullshit, excuse my French, narratives coming out of right wing media about Democratic cities. But they are also not a paradise of perfect policy. The truth is somewhere in between. And I think that because of what we talked about last week, that none of us can recalibrate or don't want to. Or maybe it's not the right thing to do. It's like you say, like, how am I going to stand up here and say, well, the answer isn't always with the technocrats. We also need to trust government and politicians when we're talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene every 15 minutes. Like, I get it. <laughs> I get that's a hard sell. But sometimes it's like, I don't know, we have to talk about what we want instead of what we have right in front of us. And I don't want corporate governance. And I don't want Reddit governance either. With love. I want actual governance. And I think that, you know, a good and true functioning federal government isn't just run by technocrats. It is also run by politicians, and that's important. And, you know, like you said, it's a mixed bag, and the truth is somewhere in between, and nobody wants to hear that, and that's not easy to sell, and it's certainly not easy to debate on Twitter. And it kind of takes us full circle to COVID relief, I think, because if you accept the mixed bag, okay, you just like lean into full embrace of what feels like a horribly unsatisfying conclusion. And you accept it in a bunch of different ways, right? You accept that the American economy is a mixed bag of socialism and capitalism. Already, it has been for most of our country's history. It always will be. And what we're arguing about is the proportion of each in the mixed bag. And when we talk about regulation by governmental authorities versus corporate self-regulation versus the regulation that consumers impose by voting with our dollars. What what we're really arguing about is not all one thing or another. It's the proportion and relative strength of each. If you accept all of that, what my hope is, is that we can get to real discussions about that stuff instead of the spin of it all. If there is a real negotiation at the White House today about substantive ways to improve the disaster relief delivered by the United States government to its citizens, I am thrilled. If what's going on at the White House today is some ridiculous test of how Biden is delivering on his unity promise, I am disgusted. Because there is something very real happening on the ground in terms of need 
And for it to be batted around like that in Washington, D.C., around a pandemic is the worst of where we could be headed as a society. Well, and maybe the real solution is just to continue this metaphor until it is totally dead. Just to look in the bag. (laughs) You know, it's a mixed bag. And sometimes it's more intimidating because we don't actually open it. I didn't love going, you know, 30 tweets deep on a thread about what is actually happening between the retail investors on Robinhood and the actual stocks. It was confusing. I still don't think I understand it all. I definitely don't understand everything laid out in that article about what happens between the pharmaceutical companies and the hospitals and how CVS owns one of the companies that actually makes those transactions. It left me feeling powerless and overwhelmed and a little bit stupid. And that sucks. And nobody likes that. But the end of the day, because we do live in this massive global environment and because it does affect us. And sometimes it's, you know, looking in the bag. Sometimes it's asking for help. Sometimes it's just not following the emotional reaction because there's this little piece of you that says maybe this is a little more complicated than this. And let's hope that people like Susan Collins are also following that instinct from time to time and saying like, you know, just because it's a mixed bag doesn't mean we just throw our hands up in the air and say, well, forget it and and follow that nihilistic impulse to turn and walk in the other direction. So I guess that's my plea to to dig in the mixed bag. I like to think that's what we do here, fancy politics. Dig in the mixed bags. Well, it's a business-oriented show today, so we're going to end with what's on our minds outside of politics by turning this over to two people who are very important to our business. You're next going to hear from Elise Snap and Megan Hart about what they do with fancy politics and some exciting developments around that. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. 
Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Well, good morning, Elise. Congratulations on your uh, first day starting full-time with Pantsuit Politics. I'm so exciting. Good morning, Megan, and congratulations to you for starting part-time. It's a big day here at the show. <laughs> for those of you who are a little bit like, who are these people? Why am I hearing them? We thought maybe we would just tell you who we are first. So my name is Elise Knapp. You've probably heard my name in the credits of the show for... A while now. I'm the managing director of the show. I live in North Carolina with my husband, Kevin, who, if you follow me on Twitter, you get a lot of good Kevin quotes. Up until today, literally today, I have spent my full-time career in higher education. I've been on the faculty side, the staff side, and most recently working for a consulting firm. But on the side, for the last three years, I have been helping Sarah and Beth and being involved with the show. So I started as a volunteer in February 2018. I've been a listener since January of 2017, but I'm super, super excited to finally be coming on full time starting today. Megan, what about you? Uh, yeah, so I, uh, my name is Megan Hart. I am the, uh, live in Missouri with my husband, Ben. I am an engineer, biomedical engineer, have been in the healthcare industry um, a few years now. I'm a soon-to-be lawyer. I'm graduating. Uh, the plan, at least, is this May uh, 2021. I have been a listener of the show for four years now. I actually started the day, the first podcast episode after the 2016 election. I very vividly remember starting Pansy Politics then. I started the book club as a volunteer in 2017. It was a tweet by Beth or someone said, who's anyone interested in a book club? And I just kind of took it and ran with it. Uh, joined the team on a volunteer basis last year in 2020 to start um, and be the book club coordinator. And I'm excited to start my role as community engagement manager on a part-time basis with the team today. Yay, so exciting. So maybe the next thing we should do is just tell people a little bit about what in the world those titles mean. So Megan, do you want to talk a little bit about what you're going to be doing with us part-time? Absolutely. So Pantsuit Politics community, um, if 
you know, for many of our listeners who listen to multiple podcasts, maybe, or who understand, Pansy Politics Community is a really, really unique aspect to this podcast. It's not just a podcast, it's a community that we engage with in so many different ways. So as the community engagement manager, I want to bring all those community together and help us to really make that experience for our community members the best that it can be. So we couldn't be what our listeners call the best little corner of the internet without all of our listeners, all of the people who want to support us, provide us feedback, and then actually be a part of community. They want to get involved in each other's lives, which is just wonderful. So my role is to help bring all of that together and make it the best, make it the best that we can be. Um, with the Extra Credit Book Club, I will continue to help with that. And we want that to continue to be something special. And then we want to integrate it into the other parts of our community and really bring that content all together. So that will be the community engagement manager uh, as a part-time member of the team. How about you, Elise? What do you will be doing full-time now? Well, I just have to affirm to what you said about our community being the best and that we couldn't do this without them. But yes, my full-time managing director ship, <laughs> if that's what we're going to call it. Um, so I have been managing director of the show for probably a year and a half now, but really coming on full-time is taking all of that and multiplying it by five or six or however, maybe five or 600. Um, so as managing director, it kind of is a little bit of a catch-all position, kind of a COO for the show and for our work. I touch pretty much everything that happens behind the scenes with Beth and Sarah. I keep all the trains running. A little bit of everything. Everything from big picture conversations about content and what we're talking about on the show from week to week to, you know, bigger picture strategy and long-term vision for the show and the community. Everything from small details like putting together the show notes for each episode to keeping the team organized to working with all of our amazing partners that help us make the show real. So our Studio D team, the ACAST team that helps us with advertising and being a part of their network, uh, Ruth Brown, who does some designing for us on the side, just kind of a, a little bit of everyone who helps the show in some form or fashion, keeping that all organized and running. And post-pandemic, when we can again, I'll be helping think about live tours, which will be very, very exciting when we can get back out on the road and see all of you again. So I guess the next big question that some of you might be wondering is, what does this mean for the show? And the answer to that is nothing, sort of. <laughs> um, your listener experience won't change. It'll still just be Sarah and Beth hosting the show. We're not going to jump in as like new co-hosts or anything. Maybe we might fill in every once in a while when someone is on vacation, but it will be Sarah and Beth. It'll be what you have come to know and love from them. They'll be giving you the content here on the podcast and the vast amount of bonus content. Megan and I will just show up every once in a while like this. The biggest thing that we're hoping by expanding the team is just to see quality improvement. Honestly, in a lot of ways, we have been a little engine that could team for a, a long time. You know, if you listen to something like The Daily from the New York Times, at the end, you hear Michael Barbaro list like 17,000 people's names <laughs> at the end of the show in their credits. And they have a lot more people working on their show than we do. Now, their show is different than ours, of course, but um, we're really excited that having more commitment from a full-time and part-time team will enable us to do more, more community support, more structure around the work, more long-term planning and dreaming. Um, so more, but also just 
making everything better. So continually improving the quality of what you're getting here at Pantsuit Politics, just having more dedicated team members to make that possible. Absolutely. And I think the the reason that we can do all of this and have this conversation this morning and talk to you about this growing team is the amazing listener support. We talked about the amazing community. We could not do what we do and we could not expand this team and hope to bring you more content, better content, better quality content without all of you. So thank you to our listener support. Um, It really makes the biggest difference and we're really excited for what it means for 2021 moving forward. Yeah, seriously, thank you. If you are just a regular listener of the show here in your podcast feed, if you're a patron, especially our executive producers who have been amazing, if you're someone who buys from the sponsors when you hear the ads on the show, if you tell other people about the show, if you follow us on social media or anywhere online, you are part of this community and and we absolutely could not be doing this and growing the show and making the show better without your support and your being a part of of our world. So thank you. It feels so inadequate, but it is so absolutely true. And we are just incredibly grateful. So Megan, I guess we should get off to work this morning. That's great. <laughs> I will, uh, we'll talk thank to you all very soon. <laughs> yes, we will. Thank you, Elise and Megan. Thank you to all of you for joining us and for supporting what we do here in a variety of ways. We are really looking forward to your thoughts about this discussion which is in many ways an umbrella of all the discussions that we have here. So let us know and we will see you back here on Friday. Have the best week available to you. Pantsy Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Lodow, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Danny Osmond, Molly Kors, Julie Haller, Jared Minson, Marnie Johansson, The Creeps! Tawny Peterson. Sherry Blim. Tiffany Hasler. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Linda Daniel. Joshua Allen. And Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.